Welcome to Jonathan on Money, the personal finance podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies to help you achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Jonathan I. Shankman. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from investing, financial planning, retirement, and behavioral finance. I'll share advice and practical tips to help you make the most of your money. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your finances to the next level, Jonathan on Money is here to help. Let's dive into this week's show. Welcome to today's episode. This week, we're going to go in focus where we explore more advanced wealth planning topics. They will discuss coming to America, pre-immigration tax and estate planning considerations. Just by way of background, when someone moves to the U.S., there are a whole host of legal, tax, estate planning, and financial planning challenges. Today, we'll cover the legal issues and challenges to becoming a citizen, and then discuss relevant financial, tax, and estate planning topics. Some areas we covered in this week's show include the immigration process and the EB-5 program, strategies to minimize the tax impact of becoming a U.S. resident, how is a trust a fine for United States tax purposes, tax reporting requirements once I become a tax resident of the U.S., potential changes with pre-immigration trust if the immigrant becomes a United States resident, alien within five years, impact to a foreign trust, implications when expatriating from the U.S., and more. Now, with that introduction out of the way, I'd like to give a short bio for each of our three esteemed panelists. First, Michael Wilds is a managing partner with the leading immigration law firm Wilds & Weinberg located in New York City, Miami, New Jersey. He serves as counsel to Lincoln Center and several international corporate law firms. A former federal prosecutor with the United States Attorney's Office in Brooklyn, he has testified on Capitol Hill in connection with anti-terrorism legislation and is internationally renowned for his successful representation of distinguished individuals, including former First Lady Melania Trump and soccer legend Star Kelly. Larry Lipoff is director and Cone Residence Trust and Estate Practice based in the firm's New York office with more than 30 years of experience specializing in the delivery of domestic and international private client services to enable high net worth individuals and families maximize their new or generational wealth. And finally, Eli Akhavan is a partner at Steptoe & Johnson where he focuses on tax and estate planning for high net worth U.S. and non-U.S. clients. He advises domestic and international individuals and families with respect to tax and estate planning for their U.S. assets and beneficiaries. Eli also advises cross-border clients on all aspects of international estate matters, including foreign trust, pre-immigration and expatriation planning, and on planning for the purchase of U.S. residential and investment real property. Today, Michael, Larry, and Eli will be discussing coming to America, pre-immigration tax and estate planning considerations. Now, before we launch into the meat of our program, I'd like to ask each speaker to spend just 30 seconds to tell us a bit more about their practice area in case I left anything out. So let's first go to Michael. Thank you so much for hosting me, and I'm honored to be with these other distinguished panelists. The law firm Wilds & Weinberg that I manage was started by my father. He should live to 120. He's actually 90 uh, years young. He started it in the same building where we're paying rent on 53rd and Madison in Midtown. All we do is U.S. immigration, New York, New Jersey, Miami, and by appointment only in Los Angeles and Tel Aviv. We have five divisions. We deal with business visas. I teach business immigration law at Cardoza Law School. We have a family unit. We litigate in federal court and in immigration court trying to move our clients' matters forward if we need to. We have a robust consular practice and ultimately a onboarding and compliance, I-9s and all of that. A, we're generally the first lawyer that a foreign national meets, and before they even make a decision to take a green card, a visa, or citizenship, or to give it up for tax reasons, we're often the first lawyer, and we make a lot of referrals. So I'd love to hear from you if I could be of any support. Great. And uh, let's turn to Larry for just a 30-second overview. Thank you very much. So um, Jonathan mentioned that I'm uh, Tone Resnick, uh, part of the National Tax Program, uh, you know, department. Um, one of the things is going on that I find pretty interesting is that as I get more years of experience, that seeing these specialization in um, accounting and legal practice as well, that it's good to be a generalist. So I was a tax generalist before I became a specialist first in S corporations and then domestic and then international trust and state work. 
And I find that being able to jump through and see things from a holistic uh, viewpoint is very helpful as being part of a professional team and especially for our mutual clients. And, uh, you know, hopefully some of those issues will come to play in today's session, but also as uh, matters come up uh, go going forward, if uh, it could be helpful, very helpful, very happy to do that. And, you know, having such a fantastic team of uh, professionals, uh, it's, uh, I appreciate being uh, added to the program. Great, thank you. And let's turn to Eli for a quick overview of his practice. Good morning, everybody. Uh, thank you for joining in today. Thank you for, to Jonathan for arranging all this and this uh, uh, terrific panel. I'm happy to be on with, with Larry and Michael. Uh, as Jonathan mentioned, I'm a partner in Septon Johnson's tax and private client group practice. I focus on domestic and international estate planning. I'm involved in various both domestic as well as international bar associations that deal with cross-border issues. I've taught international taxation at St. John's University School of Law. Um, this year in particular, I've had a lot of opportunity to travel abroad. And the trend that we're seeing is that people from abroad view the US as a safe haven. And even if they're not prepared to move themselves yet, they're certainly moving their assets. If they have adult children, they're encouraging them to move to the US. So you're gonna to find today's program quite informative to at least have the high level overview of the issues that you should advise your clients on. Great, thank you so much, uh, Eli. Uh, now let's turn back to Michael, just to set the stage for us to first discuss the immigration planning process. My first question is basic, but of interest to many. And that is how long does the immigration process typically take? Well, thank you. And first, I didn't plug um, when Eli said safe haven. I actually wrote a book, and it's called Safe Haven uh, in America. So it's available if I don't put you to sleep. How long does the process take, uh, Jonathan? As long as you let it. You know, we're experts in our office at speeding things up when they're going to slow and choosing options from the outset, where timing becomes the most relevant uh, feature. Many lawyers convince clients to apply for green cards right away, but that's often the wrong strategy and strips a client of control over the process. My dad trained me to give somebody a visa solution, but place them in a position where one day they may want to apply for a green card or retreat back, put them in a visa that allows for a dual intent, but don't necessarily go there without taking good tax counsel. To do the green card process properly through an embassy, you can easily on timing, Jonathan, take about two years. Well, often we want to find a temporary solution to give a person the ability to enter, to start working, and then handle the green card on their timeline to limit the inconvenience. We've done cases with clients in the United States who later go get their green cards abroad. We've done domestic clients where clients travel um, from before we start until the case ends. And for clients with limited needs, the key is planning ahead to make sure that they have the right visa to start and the timing uh, is lined up. When things go sideways and people come to us to complain that their case is taking forever with another lawyer, we then look for intermittent solutions, whether that's an H-1B, a professional work visa, the acronym HELLO, H-E-L-O, the H visa, the one that's a specialty occupation if you have a degree, gives you a proper insulation, Investors, entrepreneurs, risk takers, those e-visas that have make America or founding documents and founding parents proud a generation later, or the intercompany transfer, the L visa, or for the rock stars, those O visas, people who are distinguished in their space. Sometimes we have to go not just for those lettered visa band-aids, but also emergency advanced parole, travel permission, or mandamus lawsuits, go to federal court to bully the government into moving our clients to the front of the line. A comment I've heard from clients is, I wanna to move to America, but my accountant told me to avoid a green card. You may have touched on this a bit, but for an individual like this, what are their options? A lot of our clients come in and you can tell that they're allergic to a green card for tax purposes, and they're under different impressions, what a green card, what citizenship. And there are a lot of people that have exposure or they're multinationals of several countries. You have to make sure that you see things in the room that your client may not anticipate. It's a common situation for our clients, and there are 
few key factors to consider, including current employment, their credentials, and planned activities in the United States. Is there a brief, innocent, and casual need to be in America? Is there a relative that they're seeing, uh, and so forth? If a person will be running their own business, we generally want to do a top-down assessment to include the eligibility for those L1s, the E1s, the Os, those international entrepreneurs, uh, visas, uh, and other options. The L and the E are the nice visas because they give a long term on each visa. I've had uh, oil magnets that have been in America on E2s for 30 years. We've had clients that don't have, they watch days so that they run a sconce of taxation and visas at the same time. The L and the E2 are nice because they give a longer term for each visa, meaning less trips to the embassy. There are reciprocal relationships that we have with particular countries, so it's nuanced by where the person is from. But the L1 is not a status that can be held indefinitely, and it requires the company to have operations, employees in both the United States and abroad, and that can potentially create business expense that's unnecessary. I like those visas, but I love the O visa because it's, it's great for people who want to dabble in multiple businesses, working for different jobs. They can be their own gentleman, gentle lady if they want. It gives them flexibility to potentially renew uh, indefinitely, but you have to have risen to a level of achievement in your space. One half measure that sometimes works for people who want to buy time and applying for a green card with USCIS, which is immigration, but not finishing the process as a Band-Aid is sometimes a way to have a cake and eat it too. You can also have couples, particularly where one party gets a green card and it includes children up to the age of 21 and then the principal uh, person with wealth uh, doesn't. We have a billionaire Canadian family with the entire family, literally about 30 people uh, on E2 uh, visas, dozens of people living full-time in the United States, minimizing the tax burden and doing everything properly according to immigration law because there are many uh, loopholes or nuances that we know how to work. Uh, we've also gotten other creative solutions where we use for clients, but a few key questions are usually enough to help point us in the right direction. And we have that capability of doing it in the initial intake. Many of the attendees on this webinar are advisors to high net worth families living abroad, some of which are eager to move and work in the US. Can you tell us a bit about the EB-5 program, how it works, and any best practices for advisors to consider when speaking to their clients? No problem. My father actually testified on, on Capitol Hill and supported the EB-5 program. Um, and it is robust. We have, thank God, a stellar record in dealing with those cases. The EB-5 program is essentially a government approved way of buying a green card, technically speaking, it's an investment in the United States project, which means that the money can earn a return and be recouped at the end of the project. Investments amounts, there are three kinds of EB-5s. One, you put a million uh, $50,000 into a business where you're paying 10 people to do work. That may be hard in this economy to sustain. The second one is if you're doing $800,000 in a rural area where unemployment is very high, or third is a regional center, a matrix of about 875 companies that have been pre-approved where you give them 800K and you get it back five, uh, six years later. EB-5 investments tend to have a lower return and higher risk than other investments. Oftentimes other investors are EB-5 investors as most people just look for a return, seem to steer clear. And there are many anecdotes of investment schemes run by shady operators. If you Google it, you'll see it's very uh, disturbing and there are a lot of unethical practices historically in this space. There's a double whammy because if the funds are stolen or the project doesn't get go as planned, it could also mean that the investor doesn't qualify for the visa. You get a conditional green card only good for two years. You then have to file a petition to remove the conditions to the green card, much like in marriage cases, the government wants a look back. Knock on wood to date, our EB-5 clients have not lost money and all have received uh, their money back, going with reputable investment opportunities and professionals like you, I'm not licensed to tell them where to put their money, is substantial and critical to achieving a good outcome. 
The process to obtain the conditional green card is lengthy. It often takes three years. And for that reason, we have to look for another visa solution or put the party abroad. We have a lot of uh, Russian and Chinese magnets where the principal doesn't go for tax reasons, but the spouse goes with the children up to the age of 21. Again, once successful, immigrants get a conditional two-year green card. 90 days before the end of the two-year period, you file another petition to remove the conditions, thus making them a full permanent resident. So you have to make sure you stay with the law firm that knows what they're doing. In every case, the EB-5 investors must be able to demonstrate a lawful source and a path of funds. These applications are you know, feet long, not inches long in our office. And often we do a deep dive uh, for our client to make sure that it's sourced out properly and that they understand. Um, the law lapsed last year, which is a ridiculous experience where there were 50,000 people who had invested these substantial funds and their case was lost in the shuffle, which is a remarkable experience. So you have to be able to warn your clients and pivot if there are delays from COVID to even happenstance in Congress who is a mess when it comes to these things, unfortunately. Great, thank you, Michael, for that helpful background and setting the stage for us. Um, before we continue with the estate and tax planning portion of this program, I'd like to first share the code for accountants and attorneys who are taking this program for credit. Please write this down. The code is E22, again, E as an echo, the number two, and once again, the number two, one final time, E22. Okay, for this section, I'll direct each question to either Eli or Larry, but either of you can feel free to add to any point being made. For the first question, which is for Eli, what are the two primary tax goals that pre-immigration planning achieves? So in order to answer that question, we have to understand the basic US tax system. Uh, in, in general, globally, there are two ways uh, to tax uh, individuals um, and companies as well. But one is we're going to focus on individuals now. One is by residence, where an individual actually resides. And the second is through citizenship. And those taxation systems globally have a, uh, either solely one way or a combination of the two. Uh, but those are the two general ways. Now, citizenship by uh, by um, sorry, taxation by citizenship means as long as you're the citizen of one country, that country gets to tax you on your worldwide income, no matter where you reside. Currently, there are only two jurisdictions in the, on the planet that do that. One is the United States. And second, I, I wish we could get um, uh, some sort of uh, audible input from the audience. The second um, jurisdiction is Eritrea. And Eritrea is it's not a made up country. It's actually a country in Northeast Africa. Um, I believe it's next to Ethiopia. It's by the Red Sea. Um, some we've really never mentioned, but that is certainly a uh, uh, interesting feature that we, the United States shares with another uh, country in, in around the world. Um, we don't, I don't think we share any other commonalities with, with, with them. Uh, but these are the two countries that tax by uh, citizenship. Now, when an individual uh, comes and wants to move to the United States, um, and whether they become a tax resident or eventually a citizen, the tax effects are generally the same. Uh, you know, in, in, in 35 minutes or 36 minutes for me and Larry to speak about um, tax immigration strategies or pre-immigration strategies, you know, we could speak a whole day on it. I'm sure Larry can as well. Um, but we're going to give you the high level overview here. But there are two tax systems in the United States you got to be concerned about. One, the income tax. Two, estate and gift taxation. So once an individual moves to the United States and becomes a tax resident, so if they're a green card holder, tax resident. They become a citizen, a tax resident. If they meet the substantial presence test, which is essentially 183 days within one year that they're in the US, or they're, um, they meet over a three-year period, 120 days each year being in the United States, that's what the formula comes out to, they become a tax resident. So if you become a tax resident of the United States, you're subject to worldwide taxation. 
So for people who already have gains in their home country, and those gains are would be subject to high level of taxation in the United States, it may make sense for them to dispose and of those assets and recognize those gains while they're still in their home country. Now, obviously, the tax rates make a difference. Um, investment horizons make a difference. You know, tax should not be driving all investment and, and asset allocation decisions. But that is certainly one item to consider. Uh, second item, the United States um, treats ownership by tax residents of the U.S., but um, ownership of foreign entities in quite a negative way. So we have what are called the anti-deferral regime, and that includes CFCs, controlled foreign corporations, PFIX, passive foreign investment companies. So if you have a U.S. resident, tax resident, that has ownership interests in foreign entities, you may not want them to own those foreign entities when they move to the U.S. due to the adverse tax consequences. Um, there's, there are different ways you can get, you can liquidate the corporation, you can make a check the box election on those entities. There are a myriad of ways to address that, which again is beyond the scope of our talk today, but that's just some issue to be aware of beforehand. Another um, advantage of making a check the box election, which Larry may, may address, is getting a step up in basis. So when that individual does move to the United States, their basis in the asset may be higher. Uh, so when they do sell it, they'll have a much lower gain or a zero gain. Um, now the step up, the check the box election, which essentially treats an entity um, as a different type of entity and it steps up the basis in the, in the entity's assets, that may not cause a tax event in the individual's home country. So they get a tax benefit in the United States, no tax, average tax on consequence in the individual's home country, win-win. Okay, those are some basics on the income tax um, uh, strategies that are available. The next issue they have to be aware of is estate and gift taxation. So when an individual becomes a domiciliary of the United States, which means that they are present in the United States and they have no definite present intention to leave, they are domiciled in the United States which means they're now subject to worldwide estate taxation on their assets. Now, why is that important? Well, worldwide estate taxation means that if they have assets in, in their home country and they wanted to move it around, they want to make gifts of it, the moment they become domiciled in the US, that's it, they're done. They're gonna be subject to US estate taxation or gift taxation, doesn't matter where they're making gifts, doesn't matter um, that their assets are cited abroad, the U.S. will tax those assets for estate and gift tax purposes if they meet certain thresholds. Um, so it may make sense that before they move here, and if they're oh, way over the exemption amount, which is currently $12.9 million, they move around those assets. They make gifts of those assets. So if they're abroad, they're not a U.S. domiciliary yet, they can make gifts of $50 million, $60 million, assuming there's no issue in their home country, with no U.S. estate and gift tax consequences, and that may be a, a, a beneficial idea. But in general, those are the two regimes you got to be uh, thinking about, one income tax and one estate and gift tax. And I want to point out um, this, nu this nuance um, um, difference. Just because an individual is a resident for income tax purposes does not mean they're a resident for estate and gift tax, and vice versa. So what that could actually mean is that individual moves here, they may not have been a tax resident for income tax purposes yet, they don't have a green card, um, they haven't met the substantial presence test yet, they're not a US citizen, but the moment they move here with no uh, definite in, um, present intention to leave, they become a domiciliary for US and estate gift tax purposes, which means that the worldwide assets are now going to be subject to estate and gift taxation. Eli, just a couple of thoughts. Number one, you know, it's great the quadrant because you could be, uh, you know, not resident for uh, both the uh, income and uh, gift and estate. You could be for both. You could be one and not the other. I've had every single quadrant. So that becomes really a good way to lay it out. And I think a lot of clients uh, become surprised, uh, which leads to 
an interesting quandrum because sometimes if you have a non-resident alien who is US property, if they would figure out a way to become a US resident for state tax purposes. So when they pass away, sometimes it comes out that they'll pay less United States estate tax as a United States resident than they would as a non-resident. For example, a um, United States resident, now they have almost a $13 million lifetime exclusion. If they're a non-resident alien, it's gonna be $60,000. United States person, if they have debts, that's gonna go against their uh, worldwide assets. If it's gonna be a non-resident alien, it's going to be a fraction, the deductibility of a fraction of their US assets uh, compared to their worldwide assets, and they're looking at a $60,000 exclusion. So, and practically, and Eli, I'm sure you've had it also, where it's not clear if someone's a domiciliary or not. It could be on the gift tax side and, you know, very much so on, uh, you know, an estate tax. And it becomes the finding fact of what they actually are. The other uh, point that I've had is that the check the box election uh, in pre-immigration, which you mentioned, which I think is a powerful tool, especially if uh, let's say someone has a fund or something like that, really appreciate assets to check the box. But question becomes in the literature, if that works, because does that really have US effect? I think a lot of us as practitioners say, hey, it does, but there are articles out there saying, well, why are you actually doing it? How does that do anything other than a tax play? But uh, what I'd like to bring up as a response to that question that's brought up in the literature is that it encourages people to come to the United States. And for the right people, the United States has a legitimate reason to bring them in and to allow them to make this check the box election, I think it's a powerful tool, not just for them and their family, but also the United States, for the United States' goals. Um, the next question I have is directed to Eli, which I think he uh, may have recovered some of this, but if there's anything you wanna reemphasize, um, why is it important for tax purposes to plan prior to immigrating to the United States? Do you wanna add anything to that? Right, so, so I, I think we, you know, I, I did cover parts of that. The, the key takeaway here is if you have a client and they have substantial assets and ownership interests, uh, you wanna plan for the income tax. As I said, if there are foreign entities that they hold, there are two reasons why you wanna plan for that. One, to get a step up in basis so that when they do move here, um, they have a, they'll be subject to lower U.S. income taxation. And that's subject to what, what Larry just mentioned, having um, a relevant effect. And, you know, that is a great point. It's a nuanced point. Um, Larry and I have, have, have worked on those type of issues before. Uh, becomes quite important in terms of the tax. And that's why uh, the tax consequences, that's why you got to, you know, work with the right advisor on this. Um, but that's one reason. Two, as I mentioned, if you have U.S. residents or tax residents that own ownership interests in foreign entities, you got to be careful there. So you 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 got to you know be advised on what the consequence of that would be and how to plan for it beforehand. When it comes and the takeaway for estate and gift taxation is that as long as you can, you're not a U.S. resident. If you're making gifts of non-U.S. situs assets. Um, you can put yourself in a better position when you do move to the U.S. And I wanted to point something out that Larry mentioned. There's a difference between U.S. situs and non-U.S. situs assets. So Larry pointed out correctly, if you have a non-citizen, non-resident that owns, let's say, U.S. real property, U.S. real property is going to be subject to U.S. estate taxation, even, even though that that individual has nothing to do with the US, no residency, no beneficiaries, except for that ownership in that property. That property is a US situs asset and the non-citizen non-resident is subject to state taxation on that asset. So there are what's considered a non-US situs asset. Well, you have stocks, uh, intangible property, um, tangible property that's located outside the US. Um, those are considered uh, uh, non-US status assets, and you can plan with those. But the takeaway is 
client with substantial assets and even not so substantial, there's a lot of income tax benefits and the standard gift tax benefits that could be obtained prior to moving here. And you as advisors should certainly be aware of that and uh, caution your client on it and, and um, advise and plan for them. Let's return to Larry. Um, how is a trust defined for United States tax purposes? What makes the trust domestic or foreign? And is the definition limited to an entity called a trust? I really appreciate it. It's a fantastic question. And over my years doing this type of work, and I'm sure uh, Eli's had it as well, has situations where something is called a trust that's not a trust for United States tax purposes. Sometimes we've had other entities that are actually trusts for United States tax purposes. And um, to just give an example, and I think it's easier to back into the definition that way. So we had a, in, at my firm, a new client, they joined, uh, came in last year, the beginning of April of um, last year. And we're looking at, at that time, 2021 income tax compliance. And the person had set up in a foreign country, was a US person that um, he was a potential beneficiary of a um, land trust. And uh, the engagement partner, just brand new client said, hey, I have this, Ooh, I have to speak to our international t &E group about it because we have this seemingly a grant to a trust, right? I could understand it's foreign grant to a trust. And what are we gonna do? Because uh, if you have a foreign grant to a trust with the US owner, the deadline is March 15th. And here the new client comes in the beginning of April, April 4th, 5th of uh, last year. And it became a matter of concern until it reached me. And then I said, okay, if we have it, uh, we have to worry about a form 3520-A. And whenever there's a 3520-A with the US owner, so the, the owner needs a 3520. So the trustee files a 3520-A. And here we go, and the individual has to file a form 3520. If it's late, there's a way to file um, a substitute 3520-A attached to the 3520. But you know what? Let me look at it. And the reality is that there's specific definition, but not totally clear um, in the treasury regulations, not in internal revenue code. Uh, for those that want to write it down, it's treasury regulation 301 point seven seven dash zero one dash four three oh one point seven seven zero one dash four that's the definition of a um uh, a foreign trust for united states tax purpose which basically is a situation where there's someone a trustee that's uh managing assets for the beneficiary the benefit of beneficiaries and it's not necessarily in business. That could be, it could say trust. I've years back I had a you know a trust invested in from uh, UK real estate hotel in Florida, and I said afterwards that uh, you know after I analyzed it that this is really a partnership for income tax purposes. You have to be very careful. And sometimes, like in Canada, you could have an estate that's really a trust, or vice versa. So you have to look at those regulations, that regulation. It's not that long, but you need to pass through it. Okay, so let's say it's a trust. Then you have to see, is it a domestic trust or a foreign trust? And what you're going to look at is that there are two um, tests. One is a court test, and the other one is a control test. And what I tell um, the people I work with and my clients, it's, Every trust is a foreign trust unless it meets the test of both the court and control test to be a, a domestic uh, to be a domestic trust. So start off always with the understanding it's a foreign trust. So what is it? So court uh, test that the primary supervision is under a United States court. 
And the control test is that all that have the ability to make uh, substantial decisions for the trust are US persons, meaning citizens or resident aliens. If something goes wrong, there's a limited time to make a correction, to make it so that it's not a foreign trust. We often have situations in the last number of years that the concept in foreign jurisdictions of having a protector, which is not really a trustee, but whether or not fiduciary, not clear. But if you have a uh, protector, sometimes that becomes a foreign person and that could cause a trust to become a foreign trust unexpectedly. What could be a bad thing? Let's say a US person sets up a foreign trust, has appreciated assets. They think they're setting up a domestic trust. It's actually a foreign trust. If there is um, appreciated income, there could be a capital gain um, uh, transaction, an income tax recognition that one has to be very careful about and address it. So we need to be uh, on top of that. Now, um, the next thing would be whether or not you, uh, trust is a grantor trust or a non-grantor trust. But the foreign um, trust, if it's set up by a US person, general rules. So then if it's set up with a, a trust which has at least one beneficiary who's a US person. And it's a foreign trust, that's a foreign grant of trust as a, to the set where the person set it up. If it's going to be a um, foreign trust, if it's a revocable trust, so that's gonna be a, a foreign grant of trust for US purposes, going to have a non-resident, uh, non-citizen, as the uh, grantor. If it's going to be irrevocable, an irrevocable trust can't make changes. So then what will be is it could still be a foreign grantor trust if the current beneficiaries can only be the settlor and or spouse. So you have to look at each situation and uh, dig into the facts. Um, I know Eli, have you had uh, situations that jumped out at you that, um, uh, you know, surprised everyone uh, when you, you know, were brought into the situation? So it's a good question. Larry. I think when it comes to cross-border planning, no two situations are alike. Uh, generally, when it comes to domestic planning, you know, we have a fair idea of the types of planning and the tools available at our disposal that we can do for the clients to achieve their uh, succession and their inheritance and their tax objectives. When it comes to uh, cross-border planning, uh, it becomes a bit more complicated. So, you know, I don't want to say every situation has come to me has been a surprise, but they all have certain challenges that come with them. Um, I, I think, you know, one of the points you mentioned, um, and this is important to note for our clients, is that if there is a foreign trust, okay, so as Larry said, all trusts, first you got to classify the entity as whether, whether or not it's a trust or it's not a trust. Now, assuming it's a trust and assuming it's foreign uh, and it's a non-grantor trust, so you got a bunch of hoops there. If you have US beneficiaries of those trusts, you are facing a world of hurt in terms of what's called the throwback rules. And, and Larry may, may touch on a little bit on that, but you wanna completely avoid the throwback rules uh, because uh, with respect to US beneficiaries, because it could erode the trust principle, erode the trust value through penalties and all. And, and if you were, you're asking Larry, what are the biggest surprises I've seen? I've seen those where the client was not advised properly um, or they were simply uh, not aware of these situations, um, you know, that, that the, they're going to have negative tax consequences. Uh, but those situations surprised me. And then we got to come in as advisor and be like, okay, how can we fix this and mitigate this as much as possible? Um, that's one of the tax consequences. And then the other, um, point you mentioned about the form 3520s, um, there are severe penalties 
if there was a failure to file um, these informational returns. And there may be no tax due, but these are informational returns. And if you don't file them with the IRS on time, and Larry, I'm sure you can tell us a bit more about that. But if you don't file those, there are severe penalties that again will erode the trust value. And the onus is on the taxpayer to show, uh, hey, this wasn't willful. These are the reasons why I didn't file it. And again, it puts the taxpayer or our clients in a more defensive position, which they don't want to be. But Larry, if you want to just um, hit on the, the basics of the throwback rules, I think that'd be great. Sure. So in terms of the throwback rules, if you have um, income in the trust, uh, there is, as far in trust, there is almost an expectation that the U.S. person is going to pick up that taxable income. However, that's not necessarily the case because the income from a trust goes to the beneficiary through a distribution. So let's say year one, year two, year three, there's income there and there's no distribution. In year four, there is a distribution. So you have to use the government forms to figure out what type of tax would have been paid in all those years. And then you have to build in an interest charge. And what's considered income for domestic trusts, uh, um, distributed net income is the term of, does not include capital gains for a domestic trust, but it does for a foreign trust. So you have to build that in as well. And then, we're used to a distribution of capital gains or qualified dividends is going to be at a preferred income tax rate. Once you get into this, those preferred rates are gone. So I um, tell people it's the throwback rules, the uh, sending out what was distributed net income to undistributed net income, UNI, is really a cousin of the uh, CFC and PFIC rules that Eli had mentioned earlier. So you really have to build a structure. There have been uh, thoughts about how to freeze the growth of a uh, throwback. Um, and sometimes the family dynamics, so you don't want to make a distribution, but there are ways to um, uh, condense it so that um, the, almost like a blocker entity to control what's going on in the investments. But um, there's also what's called a default rule, uh, which allows alternative to actual uh, information that by using a rolling average of 125% over a matter of years, one is often able to greatly mitigate the, um, the throwback rules, but the uh, problem is you go into it once, uh, domestic, uh, the default rules, you're subject to the default rules for the rest of it, except the final year when it turns into the actual. The going back and obtaining information, because here it's a foreign trust, is very difficult and it could be extremely um, complicated, time, uh, uh, you know, uh, timing is, Usually, it, because counting firms, law firms, bill based on, generally based on their time, it becomes a very expensive, tedious process, a lot of back and forth. And uh, sometimes you just can't get the information. You have to make certain assumptions. And um, so that, I think that's a important uh, point. Um, one other thing that, uh, you know, um, that Eli had mentioned with, um, uh, CFCs uh, and PFIX, and uh, could even throw in CFPs, controlled foreign partnerships, that if you have a um, foreign trust set up by um, non-US people and the only beneficiary or some of the beneficiaries are US persons, that through what's called the constructive um, attribution rules, there could be a responsibility for this US person who maybe never even knew that they were a beneficiary to be filing 
all types of uh, informational findings. Uh, sometimes there's uh, requirements as uh, deemed income. Also, um, foreign um, bank reporting, what's come known as FBARs. So there are constructive attribution rules with that as well. If someone has a signature uh, or the, their beneficiary, so then it becomes pronounced. If there's more than one, there are other ways to offset and to analyze. But again, it's one thing after another of the complications that exist. And often you want to go to um, you know, a skilled, experienced attorney like Eli to just work through all the ramifications because the CPA may say, hey, I could tell you how one presumably needs to file, but how to go about it and to mitigate uh, and just make decisions of what's going to be it. In my mind, it's more within the purview of a skilled trust, international uh, trust and states attorney than even at a CPA firm as knowledgeable as we are, because you have to be sure that at a CPA firm, you're not practicing law. Yeah, Eli, I, I don't know if we covered this in enough detail, but I just wanted to get back to the questions that I have. Um, I have a trust or a civil law foundation that I set up before immigrating to the United States. What tax issues do I need to be worried about there? Sure. So, um, and it's a great segue um, that I wanted to get into. Uh, anyways, when it, you know, you, me you mentioned civil law foundation and trust, and, and, and Larry alluded to that as well. Um, many, you know, the concept that there are two uh, globally legal systems out there. One is the common law system, which the United States is under, many other countries are, and then there's the civil law. Um, you know, I, I don't want to present a law review article on this now, but just know that there's civil law and common law. Common law recognizes the concept of a trust, and civil law does not recognize the concept of a trust. The concept of a trust is essentially your dividing um, uh, legal ownership from beneficial ownership. Uh, that's the whole concept. You have the trustee. The trustee is under mandate to provide, um, uh, to manage the assets and distribute assets for the benefit of beneficiaries. So the trustee holds legal title, but is not to assets, but it's not necessarily the beneficial owner of the assets. Now, uh, civil law countries include France, um, I mean, in the United States, Louisiana, which follows civil law, um, because they were at one point founded by the French, um, they have a lot of these types of uh, systems in place um, where they don't recognize necessarily the concept of a trust as we do, even though they're part of the United States. Um, when you go globally um, uh, or broad, you'll see certain entities called foundations that are really need, as Larry mentioned, they need to be analyzed. What exactly are they? Are they a trust? Are they another type of entity for US tax purposes? Um, you'll come across, and, and they're called foundations. Now in the United States, when we think of a foundation, we think of a charitable entity, a private foundation, a public foundation, but we're thinking of charitable vehicles for the benefit of, of not-for-profits. Um, when we hear of a foundation from abroad, if you come across your practice of the word with the, of an entity with the term foundation, this not necessarily mean that it's charitable. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Um, examples include uh, Liechtenstein Foundation. Um, that's based in Liechtenstein, obviously. Um, there, there is it's called a Siftung. Um, that's that's one type. There's a Dutch Stack Foundation, um, very interesting type of vehicle and entity. Um, it's used for asset protection purposes, it's, it's used um, for other purposes as well. In fact, uh, if you Google it, you'll see that um, the Dutch Sack Foundation is the vehicle that's used to own a certain furniture company that we've all come to love and appreciate, even though we don't really like their instructions, and that's IKEA. Um, IKEA's ownership structure is ultimately a, a Sack Foundation, and the reasons why it was structured that way as well. So that's just a broad way of, you know, to introduce the term foundation. Um, there came in foundations also, there's Panamanian foundations. Uh, again, they're set up for, for different reasons. Now, 
that we, you know, we, um, Larry and I touched on this, but if, you know, and this is a real, a real takeaway that you have to appreciate is that if there are going to be U.S. beneficiaries of an entity that is considered a foreign trust or uh, a non-grantor trust for U.S. tax purposes, we're going to have problems. So if your client is in that situation, you need to plan for that beforehand. And there, again, there are ways to remedy the situation pre-immigration. So if, if um, you know, if you, uh, you were paying attention, I, I had mentioned that pre-immigration, if your client has substantial assets, try to make as many gifts as you can to a trust. Because if you make gifts to a trust, um, you're doing it outside the U.S. tax system. So it's not subject to U.S. and state gift tax. Again, assuming it's non-U.S. status assets, we don't usually like to make gifts directly to the beneficiaries because the grantor loses control. Um, there are asset protection reasons in case they get sued, they're in a the divorce. You don't want those assets in the beneficiaries' names. So we like to make them into a trust. But if you're making them to a trust and you're going to make them to a foreign trust, which is, again, either a civil law foundation or a common law trust um, elsewhere, either in the United States or, or uh, you know, somewhere else, the whole family is coming to the U.S. and all of a sudden you're going to have a foreign trust that could either be a foreign, that could possibly be a foreign non-grantor trust, so you got to be careful, and you're going to have U.S. beneficiaries, you may run into issues there. On top of that, there is also something called the five-year rule when it comes to trust. So if you have a set law, um, a, grand, a foreign grantor, they make a gift to a trust and they move to the United States, and it could be a U.S. trust, it's, 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 you know, it doesn't matter, um, or a foreign trust, and they make a gift to that trust and they come to the United States, the U.S. will say that that trust, with, if that move happened within five years of the gift, that, that, I'm sorry, that individual becomes a U.S. tax resident within five years of gift to the trust. That trust is a grantor trust. Now, I, I think Larry and I touched on it, but the difference between a grantor trust and a non-grantor trust, that's a tax concept. That's a tax idea. The tax idea is that the trust will be ignored for income tax purposes and all items of uh, income, deductions, expenses, whatever it is, flow through to the grantor of the trust, whoever the, the grantor of the trust is. So if a trust is classified as a grantor trust with respect to the grantor, then that trust is ignored for all um, all purposes of the income tax, not a state and gift, but for all purposes of the income tax, and the grantor will have to pay the tax. So if you have a foreign grantor, makes a gift, let's I'll keep it simple, makes a gift um, um, you know, to a trust here in the U.S., and they move to the U.S. within the five years, that trust is now a grantor trust, and the grantor has to pick up all items of income. Now, they may be fine with that, but that's just something uh, to consider. Um, but if there are going to be U.S. beneficiaries, we have to plan, you have to plan to make sure that those U.S. beneficiaries are not hit with that terrible throwback tax that Larry went into. And, and I, you know, you know, I, I don't envy Larry when he has to make those computations and calculations of what those interest charges would be. And he said, at some point, you just have to make some assumptions there. Um, but the, the, that, that's the real hard work there that, that needs to be done. Yeah, maybe I could just jump on two, three things. I didn't know our time six uh, is coming down. But number one, um, you know, I mentioned about the uh, foreign foundations. Something that could be very helpful is that in the United States, a few states have started having foundations, started with New Hampshire, um, pretty sure Wyoming, South Dakota, uh, there may be one or two other states now. So any of us uh, that represent, let's say, entertainers, big thing, often they have an entourage, you know, uh, they're cook, they're this, that, um, the staff. So it may make sense to have a foundation a civil law-like foundation, one of these states, to own that in, uh, entity that uh, employs them. It could, uh, any uh, piercing carpet veil, all that could be a very good asset protection type structure for those types of clients. Another thing is we uh, got involved in um, back when with different U.S. source uh, assets and not. 
one thing that's mentioned uh, was cash. Interesting that if a non-resident alien has a cash account, is it or not subject to United States estate tax? And the answer is it all depends. If it's at a commercial bank, it's not. But dangerously, um, if it's at an investment bank that's not a commercial bank, then it is. And I've seen a few times and it's just like money in the same financial institution and they put the cash account into the uh, investment bank and that became the very painful type of situation because the, it was locked, the account was locked until you could file a state tax return and then uh, take uh, receive a waiver, which even though the uh, it takes a um, number of months to do the estate tax return and then they, the government says seven to nine months on their website, but in the reality, it's like a year and a half, two years. So you get locked out. Um, and um, one last thing, um, pre-immigration, they come in um, and let's say it's subject to the throwback rules. Hey, if this is a great way, I don't wanna do a throwback, I'm gonna domesticate the trust. And now I should be able to, there's no throwback rules since like 1986 or something like that with domestic. And then I could make distributions. Great idea. The only thing is back in 1991, Internal Revenue Service got wind of this and issued um, even revenue ruling of procedure 91-6 that said, no, 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 no. You still have to be subject to uh, filing and uh, the, um, the throwback rules. And even worse with the throwback rules is that um, it just um, goes to the most recent years. So the older years keep on getting more and more and the interest charges become worse. So in each case, uh, Eli's been driving and drilling and drilling. And I think it's true. Anything foreign, inbound, outbound, you need skilled advisors. It doesn't have to be us. It could be others, but uh, you know, uh, just uh, have the right people involved and know what you do know and where you should really uh, find, uh, you know, other help if you're a professional to work with you on these cases. We only have one minute left, and I just want to end on this last topic and then give everyone directions on how to get their credit. Um, Eli, I know you do some work on expatriation. In 60 seconds, I know that's impossible to do because this be a whole topic for a whole day. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the expatriation process? High-level overview, 60 seconds, go. Sure. From that 60 seconds, let me just take 10 seconds to add one more point. Aside from skilled advisors here in the United States, make sure you are working in conjunction with your client's offshore advisor, wherever jurisdiction they're from, whether they're in Europe, Asia, uh, uh, any other country, Latin America, you know, jurisdiction, Latin America, make sure you have... Uh, advisors there that work in tandem because you don't want to mess up anything um, or cause bad tax consequences offshore. That is it, tax and expatriation. If your client comes in, they move to the United States. I don't want to pick on any particular state, but let's say they move to North Dakota. And after a year, they see there's not much sunshine and they're not terribly happy there. They're like, I want out. You know, what happens then? Well, you got to talk to Michael to see how you're going to get, uh, you know, abandon your green card or renounce your citizenship, whatever, or, you know, whatever the case may be, but speak to Michael or any other advisor first. Second, you're going to be hit possibly with what's called the exit tax. The exit tax applies to what's called covered expatriates. Covered expatriates um, is one of, you meet one of three tests. Um, uh, I'll go, the first two are, it's either an asset test, two million above, or it's an income tax liability test. Um, and if you meet any of those, and there's a third one regarding um, not having um, comply with US tax rules, but if you meet any of those, you're a covered expatriate. And now the moment, the day you leave the United States, your assets worldwide will get hit with a tax, even though you didn't dispose of them. So if you client comes in after a few years, they're not happier in the United States, they wanna bust out. Now you gotta talk to the advisor about post-immigration planning and exit tax planning. Well, thank you so much, Michael, Larry, and Eli for that succinct overview of such an important topic. I thought that was extremely informative. The main takeaway for me is that the process of moving to the U.S. is always involved. However, if you're a person of means and have assets, investments, and business overseas, 
then the planning can be more complex and hiring the right team of advisors is imperative. Please note that I said team of advisors, since there are different disciplines covered in this process, as was discussed in this week's episode. It's impossible for one person to handle all aspects of the immigration, tax, and financial planning process effectively. And with that, it's a wrap for this week's show. Any comments or questions, feel free to reach out directly to me via email. I love hearing from my listeners. And finally, as I end every episode, the secret to financial success is no secret at all. It's to spend less than you make, invest the difference prudently, and ignore all the noise. See you next time on Shankman on Money. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope you were able to take away a nugget or two to apply to your own life. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can be alerted whenever new episodes drop. If you'd like to submit a question that may be answered in a future show, please email me at jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com. Be sure to check out all Jonathan on Money content, including all my articles, webinars, and videos by following me at Jonathan on Money on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Finally, if you like what you heard today, please rate the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps ensure that other personal finance enthusiasts can find the show as well. Thank you and catch you on the next episode of Jonathan on Money.